Hi, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. My name is AJ Hannenberg. I am joined by... Oh, Graham Donaldson. And Thomas Magby. And our podcast is aimed at making the classical world accessible to the layman. That's why we're here. We are all classical edu- educators at a classical school in Austin, Texas. Did you just call everybody lame? Uh, yeah, lame layman. Yeah, lame men. I heard lame men. Yeah, that's, that's really mean. Insulting our audience yeah. first off the bat. Uh, yes. <laughs> we have a podcast. They are all worms. Uh-huh. Anyway, wow. we yeah. Our goal is Speaking to make. Speaking of worms, mm-hmm. talking about farming. Hey, oh, we're we're trying to move help move you into the classical world because mm-hmm. there's a lot of cool stuff going on back there. Uh, we all love it. We're passionate about it, and so we thought we'd share today. Thomas Magby is going to talk to us about some stuff about farming and a book that he's reading. Yeah, I, rem- I remain super unhelpful with my the names of my topics. So. Today we're going to be talking about a dude named Wendell Berry and a book of essays he wrote called What Are People For? Um, this is not a classic, well, depends how we define classical. I don't know. Oh, it's not, whatever. It's not old is what I'm trying to say. Um, the essays we'll be covering today are from the 80s, but the reason I'm presenting it here is because it's presenting a view of modernity and questioning that, which I think will point us towards something um, older, more classical. And I think listeners of this podcast for a while realize that when we talk about classical, we do mean a pedagogy of how we teach at Veritas at our school. But then we also are talking about being skeptical of the modern world that we live in and that we we sort of receive as being modern people. We can never get out of it because it's our world, Um, but... Just like how we talked about the the value for reading good books is to or old books is to go back and look for cultural blind spots. Um, uh, they're also modern. There's also sort of um, if we only if we never sort of unthinkingly thought about the modern world, we're also just going to have blind spots. So I, I think it's definitely yeah, we're talking about like how to read the Odyssey, but we're mm. also there's also these commentaries on how can we understand the place and time that we live in by being classically minded. I just, while you're saying that, um, we haven't done an episode specifically on classical education, but then I'm not sure, like, is that... We did the trivium. Yeah, well, that's a, I mean, I, I would say that that's a piece of it, mm-hmm. but um, I don't know. <clears throat> is it one of those things that, like, you can't just, can you do just one episode and say, we did classical education? Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, I don't mm-hmm. know. So, Wendell Berry is the dude who wrote these essays, and I'm reading off of poetryfoundation.org. Thank you, poetryfoundation.org, because I am not stealing this. Um, Wendell Berry is a poet, novelist, and environmentalist. He lives on a farm in Port Royal, Kentucky, near his birthplace, where he has maintained a farm for over 40 years. Um, I, I read this because I think this next line is really funny. Mistrustful of technology, he holds deep reverence for the land and is a staunch defender of agrarian values. Author of over 40 books of poetry, fiction, and essays, his poetry celebrates the holiness of life and everyday miracles often taken for granted. Um, but he is an old school agrarian. Yes. Um, and became sort of rose to prominence in the seventies when farms, when sort of family farms were being bought up and turned into these giant agribusinesses. Yeah. And he, he wrote a lot of, he was sort of, that sort of kind of catapulted him into prominence where he was upset about these agribusinesses, um, because as far as he was concerned, it was eliminating a way of life. So since the stuff I'm talking about comes from the 80s, do you want to say any more about that? The book you read of his that I think predates. Yeah, he yeah. wrote, so he wrote a, a book called um, The Unsettling of America in the 70s. And it was about talking about like what is happening to us when we move from this idea of freeholding or these um, these family farms um, and, and cultivating a way of life, a rural way of life where man is, is needing to be in tune and in touch with the farm around him to these agribusinesses um, where um, we sort of turn the food production and we don't even need to care about seasons and we don't need to care about, um, uh, you know, uh, we, we can specialize. We can be um, have a giant warehouse full of, you know, a million chickens living in tiny cages and they don't need to live in concert with pigs and, and goats and sheep and then crops and, and, and families. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so he was, he was a sort of in the 70s seeing the writing on the wall about the way that our food and the way of our farming was moving and it was profoundly disturbing to him. Yeah. Yeah, so he, so he does a lot of writing of nonfiction, also has some fiction. Um, my Brother-in-law, who's a listener to this podcast, bought me a copy of Jaber Crow, but I've definitely not read that yet. So one day we'll get there. Um, so the book of essays is called What Are People For? And I definitely thought, like, 
Like you hear that title and you're like, this is going to be a book of ethics. Like really excited to dive into this. And it's not. It's a book on agriculture, which I ended up liking much more because I just, I don't, it's not a thing I've really read a lot about. Uh, about. Um, so it's split into three sections. First section is um, some poetry of his. Uh, it's very good. The second section, he, uh, it's a collection of some reviews he's done on biographies. Uh, he, in almost every single case, he makes fun of the person who wrote the biography, but then celebrates the person who that biography is about. And it's just delightful. And then the third section is where he goes into, um, I guess, I get, many of them are about agriculture, but even more than just farming or land or any of those things itself. Um, he's also writing about, this is, this is what Graham was just saying, that it's, um, that capitalism will push people towards specialization and push companies toward getting larger and larger so that um, it's called an, it's called economy of scale so that you can uh, get more and more profit um, by having larger and larger operations. Um, and he is opposed to that. He wants more business to be more localized. So what are people for, Thomas? Um, I'm in suspense. Well, we're actually not doing that essay, so Aww. sorry about that. Um, but it's it's kind of all that stuff that people are not for. Uh, people are not for being cogs in a machine. People are not for making profit. I keep thinking like Soylent Green. Like yeah, people right. People are for food. You want to get the most utility out of a person and even to the point of getting the nutrients. Soylent Green is people. people. Or in the Matrix, you're a battery. Oh, you're, yeah, that's yeah. right. USB. That's a metaphor, isn't it? Isn't it USB like, 4. <laughs> we talk about that yeah, before? We yeah, that's, it can't even be wireless. Um, so there are two essays back-to-back that um, we'll be talking about today. And I have two places I'd like us to get to, but, you know, I'm... I don't have a stranglehold on this, so we'll see where we go. The first one is titled, Why I Am Not Going to Buy a Computer, and it's immediately followed by an essay that comes from that article, or comes from that essay. And the year is, you said the 80s? This is 1987 for the first one. Mm. And then his second one is Feminism, the Body, and the Machine. So clearly very connected. It's not. Anyway, 1989 is when that essay was written. Cool. So let's start with the first one, Why I Am Not Going to Buy a Computer. Um, So... He uh, he talks about how he does his writing by hand. Um, he talks about how um, he he and his wife work together. He what's his funny term? It's a literary cottage industry, is what he calls it, which I just think is delightful. So he does his writing by hand. He gives the notes to his wife. His wife will type them up on a typewriter. But like she's not just taking notes. She's also his editor and helps with the ideas. And it's the two of them working really closely together. So they have this thing working. And then all of his friends come to him and say, "Hey, you should buy a computer." Because um, it'll make things easier. Yeah. So the the quote he says before going into his reasons is, a number of people by now have told me that I could greatly improve things by buying a computer. My answer is that I'm not going to do it. I have several reasons, and they are good ones. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Okay, he goes into four reasons why he doesn't want to buy a computer. Um, I So I teach a leadership class here, and so I asked them what they thought. Like, just at the title, what do you think about this guy saying, I'm not going to buy a computer? And a bunch of my kids were like, well, he's he's talking about social media, not like technology. And I was like, this is written in 1987. Like, <laughs> so, so, my, MySpace had me. <laughs> it was like there was no social media at that point. There was um, no internet. No internet. There was, there was barely media. Right. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> to, right. to get a picture off the internet, you had to like click on a link and read a book while it loaded. No, no. In 1989, there was no pictures. There was a green screen <laughs> with with dot matrix. It was DOS, DOS and you had yeah. to uh, was if you it, wanted to make pictures. If you wanted to make pictures, you had to like make it out of like numbers and tildes yeah, and, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's what like that's what I find so compelling about this is that he's not just saying, "Hey, technology is distracting." He's saying even with technology only being a word processing machine, he still doesn't want it. Is he just being a, a old curmudgeon, or does, what are, does he have good reasons? Well, there are four reasons. Um, I, can, I, I think I'm going to go through them, because um, if you were to guess these, I would be shocked if you were able to do that. Um, so his first one is that in purchasing a computer, computers run on electricity. And electricity, the, the source of uh, the electrical power comes from many places, and one of those is coal power. And so by him using electricity, he is um, encouraging the greater burning of coal. Therefore, it is not a great... It, he should at least be considerate of using more electricity. So he doesn't want to do that with a computer. That is his first argument. Do you find this argument compelling? Yes and no. I mean, I think we should all be concerned about where our power comes from. But I, I doubt that his computer was drawing much electricity. It might be a misunderstanding of how much electricity a computer actually draws, because it's not very much... At least my understanding of that. And way back then, it probably wasn't that much either. 
And then, but it's symbolic. It, yeah, it's symbolic. And on top of that, I'm wondering if he holds the same standard in his household. Like, is he super careful to shut off the lights when he leaves a room? He uses candles around the house. He's he's pretty much like a luddite, or at least he, he was in the yeah, 80s. He I don't described, know what now. He described himself as a luddite in the book. Yeah. Is he still that today? I don't know. I don't know. So again, I'm, I'm I'm accessing him in 1987 sure. from these essays, um, and I do want to read some of his more modern stuff. But at least mm-hmm. in the 80s, yeah. Um, uh, didn't use lights as much as possible. He uh, has this whole essay about how he wishes he could get rid of his car, but he's really frustrated that cities are built around there being a car, mm-hmm. and so he has to have one. Um, I I I I've kind of that. have sympathy to this because on the one hand, in the modern world, like we are a part of systems that, if you look at a bird's eye view, I think every Christian is profoundly troubled by them. Mm. Um, f- we were just earlier talking about the food industry and where our food comes from. My wife is very involved in the textile industry and fashion and where clothes come from and workers in Sri Lanka and like the, the sort of the poisons that are bleached into waters because of dying and all these kinds of things. It's just the more you look at how the world has created the conveniences that we have, I think the only answer you can have is like to be troubled by it. Some people have taken the, 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 the thing, all right, I'm going to try to exit myself from the world as much as possible and be, you know, make my own clothes and and light my house with candles and try to be as self-sufficient as possible. And I think Wendell Berry sort of falls into that category. Yes. But on the other hand, I mean, the technology and science that we have have done things like improve medicine or like, okay, in 1989, sure, maybe your computer is technically powered by coal, but now technology has given us solar panels. Mm-hmm. And so there are people who can say, I can run all the modern, I run my computer, my word processor all I want, and number one is now moot point because I can power it with a renewable technological advancement from the sun. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I feel that tension that Wendell Berry is talking about between wanting to get out of the system as much as possible because you don't want to be part of something that is... is um, damaging or yep. maybe even systematically sinful, if you even want to call it, go that way, theologically. But then there's also, like, you you can't. Like, yep. cities are built around cars, right. like, like as he said. So. so there are certain things that he just can't get away from. Um, I, I personally find his first two arguments to be the less compelling all ones. Right. So, but, but all that to say, like, I just think it's interesting that he is considering... Uh, his purchase has an effect. And so the problems of conservation are not just with the um, producer, producers of electricity. It's with the consumers of electricity mm-hmm. who are complicit in um, where that electricity comes from. And so even even in 2017, 30, 30% of our electricity comes from coal. 30.1% comes from coal. And so, um, yeah, that in using it, he's at least attempting to be thoughtful in how he uses technology. So or uh, thoughtful in the ramifications of what he is consuming. And so that, that is his first point. Do you ever think that way, Thomas, when you buy no. something? So, that's, so I'm reading this essay, and I'm thinking he's going to be like, I don't write as well, or um, some like utilitarian reason. I don't know. But it's like actually the, the morality of use of electricity. That's, it shocked me that that was his first argument that he made about being opposed to. Whenever I'm talking with someone about you don't use your cell phone, it's never... Think of the electricity that you use. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's not even on my radar as a problem. I often get frustrated with Wendell Berry the more I read him because he kind of comes off as like that annoying hipster friend that yeah. can tell you all the reasons why what you're doing is wrong. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think he, I don't think he pulls himself out of that yeah. stereotype. <laughs> no. And, and in a lot of cases, the, the place you're getting electricity is fine. Like a, dams are usually not that bad, and. They produce a lot of power. I mean, the, the area around Grand Coulee is powered almost entirely by just water flow. Yeah. So, again, these are across the, United, the U.S. Um, renewables make up 17.1. Hydro is 7.5% of where our, um, again, across the U.S. electricity comes from. Not to say he couldn't set up a solar panel and do that all himself. Right. He, he could do that. But then he would have to purchase a solar panel that was made somewhere that is using electricity that is not going to be powered by renewables. Uh Hey, sorry, his first point, whatever. I, I find it interesting. It's a it's an interesting way to look at it, but it's not the thing that I'm thinking of when I'm thinking of why I don't buy a computer. Mm-hmm. Well, then why not get a typewriter? He does. He has a typewriter. Oh, so okay. his wife types it up. Yes, but he has a typewriter from 1956, and it's as good as it was as good now as it was then. Um, he has this other part where he talks about how buckets used to be made better and how he has a bucket from the 1940s. He's very funny. He's a grumpy old man. He is a, but he's a delightfully he, he was yeah anyway he was less old then but still delightfully grumpy. Weren't we all? Um, 
his second point is that um, to sell computers, the manufacturers are advertising them to you. Um, so he's a farmer, so he talks about this from the perspective of farmers. I've seen their advertisements attempting to seduce struggling or failing farmers into the belief that they can solve prob- solve the problems by buying yet another piece of expensive equipment. Um, so the advertising is bad, and so he doesn't want to reward bad advertising by buying a computer. That's the second point. But, yeah, okay. Y'all are rolling your eyes, which is totally I'm fine. Not, but no, like, I'm not rolling my eyes. Like, like I said, so, I've got a love-hate relationship with the argument because... Part of me wants to be like, yeah, I ripped the system. Yeah. Let's go underground. Um, let's do the light candles and then and like live off grid and, and have this sort of agrarian happy lifestyle. But then on the other hand, like it's harder. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it is. Or what happens That's... when you get cholera? You know, like I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I I'm gonna move. I think the most interesting ones right. come in this next one. So his third point is that. Um, so I'll, I'll read you the third point because it's only a paragraph. Third, what would a computer cost me? More money for one thing, but that I can afford, and more than I wish to pay to people whom I do not admire. <laughs> That's so good. But the cost would not just be monetary. It is well understood that technological innovation always requires the discarding of the old model, the old model in this case being not just the dear old royal standard, that's his typewriter, but my wife, my critic, my closest reader, my fellow worker. Thus, and I think this is typical of present-day technological innovation, what would be superseded would be not only something, but somebody. In order to be technologically up-to-date as a writer, I would have to sacrifice an association that I am dependent upon uh, and that I treasure. Now, do you think he's just, the argument he's making is, like, for me, I don't want to give him my wife, or is he saying all technology moves towards individualism and less requirements of other people. Like, is he saying, I don't want to do this because me and my wife are working really well together, so it doesn't make sense for me to have a computer? Or is he saying technology divorces us from the necessity of working together, therefore I, I am against it? I think it's the second one. The, the other argument is that as productivity increases, mm-hmm. as a machine can make more of a thing, there's less need for people. And so that means people are fired uh, or let go, whatever, that they no longer are employed by a company because technology replaces them. Okay, then there's a good question. Do you think that technology, um, it is a necessary piece of tech, or that it is that, that is an essential thing of technological progress that it, like, ipso facto reduces community? Sure. Or, or sure. It, can you give, like, a, a reasoning behind that? Why it reduces... Uh, I don't know about community. Or like a defense of that? I don't know reduces community. I'm just thinking that technology. the goal of a technological advancement is increased productivity. Mm-hmm. Productivity is defined as greater output for the same input. Mm-hmm. And so that means that if you can make more stuff with less people working on it, that's fewer people that you need off the bat. That's, mm-hmm. just, that's just each one of those flows from the other. And so... And he's saying that he's seen that in microcosm in his family. With his family. And so he doesn't want to reduce his labor... By half, he doesn't want his wife not to work with him um, in his uh, literary cottage industry. There's no reason for him to want to do that. So that there's no problem being solved by going with the computer. If we could figure out a way that that I could record lectures and therefore I could teach ninth and tenth grade English, we would increase our productivity. But yes. we would get to we would fire AJ. Yes. And we wouldn't want to do that. What's that? You're assuming you'd be the one teaching both classes. <laughs> so I, I'm, I, I think there's a sub point that Wendell's making here that we're kind of missing. And that's it's that when technolog- technological advancements come, we discard the old model without considering the advantages that came with, <laughs> with the old, the old model. model. Yeah. And and I, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of coincides with our general uh, desire for the new and lack of criticism of anything that comes that's a technological advancement, right? When something new comes along, we accept it without giving a heed to the effects it might have on our lives. Mm-hmm. And that's just, I mean, part of it is just living at the speed of technology. To, to keep up, you kind of have to. If you thought through, okay, if I start staring in this at the screen, what kind of fatigue is it going to cause for my eyes? What kind of materials are in the screen? At some point, if you do that for everything, you're you're going to lag behind. You're just going to get lost. Yeah. And so I think he he more carefully considers the the gains and losses of each iteration of technology. Uh, I mean, in all fairness, dude's never seen Google Docs. Mm-hmm. Like this was in the '80s when a computer meant that she couldn't. Like if she was going to do it, she would just have to sit down and look through what he's doing. But it's not the same process as as like typing his up mm-hmm. and then finding the the goofy words in that. But 
a version of that can happen in Google Docs if you if you want, or he can still write by hand and then she can write it up. And there are other benefits that come from that sort of thing. It didn't necessarily have to be just her, right? Mm-hmm. She could type it up and then have it seen by five other writers he admires. So yes, yes. But yeah. his point here, oh man, he goes into this in the next essay that it's it's the benefit of him and his wife working together and that they together are being productive. It's not him hiring someone and hiring someone only because they're good at editing. It's that he's partnered with his wife in this. And like, there's a certain beauty in that. And he would lose that if he were going for the economically efficient model. And even Graham and AJ combining your two points, um, um, there are, I don't know if there's been a proliferation. I don't know why I always run for words like that, but um, massively, what, what are they called? M-O-O-C, um, online courses. Oh, those massive, um, like, like, yeah where you can watch the Harvard lectures online. Massive open online courses. Mm -hmm. And so, in a sense, we could be more efficient by recording either of your lectures and then just sending them out to the world for people to see them. Or instead of people coming into a classroom, we could record your lectures, not require any students to come here, and then they watch your lectures at home. Like, that would be more efficient, Instead of building... Uh, Isn't that what we are doing, No, no, but but instead of building... Podcast? We record our lectures and then Mm -hmm. send them out to the world? I think this is different, though. Um... Yeah. Instead of building a new campus, instead of like centralizing our school in this yes. one location, we have a bunch of different satellite veritases around the city, yeah. and we travel to these things. And instead of ha- instead of me having forty tenth graders, I can have two hundred fifty tenth graders, but they are all watching my lectures. And then I come in every once in a while to like swoop in and do assignments and swoop out and go to my my next batch. I had a long conversation with somebody who said the only way that the only way schools are going to survive is if they can do this. Uh, I didn't. I don't. I don't agree. Um, you lose community. Yeah, you lose community. Yeah. But um, but that's true. I mean, but I think we don't have the same responsibility, AJ. To your thing, like we are not the primary um, teacher of anyone who's listening to this podcast right now, and so this is comparable. I've had. I've and had if bo- we are, it's, I'm so sorry. If we are, I'm so sorry. There are lots of podcasts. Godspeed, my friend. To. Yes. Yeah. I mean, but I've had a few people who compare what we do here to them having a conversation with us more so than them sitting in our classes. Like, I think that is an important distinction between the two. Because I am not, I'm going point by point through this, but I'm not teaching you, like, the history of Wendell Berry and all the important ideas in this book. I'm more interested in our engaging of ideas. Like, I don't know. I think it is different than a classroom, what we're doing here. Well, we're not working towards an assessment. That, that or, or mastery. Sure. Yeah. Either of those things. We focus more on the love of, um, love of the topic being an amateur, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's the third, third one, is that there are these costs to technology that aren't encapsulated by only looking at productivity. That's his third point. I think that's an interesting point. It reminds me of the quote by Chesterton that says, oh, no, not, sorry, not the quote by Chesterton, uh, the, the proverb in the Bible that says, you know, if there is a, um, do not remove an ancient boundary stone until you mm-hmm. learn why it's there, Yeah. right? Uh, if you're going to move... If you're going to move this this boundary to, to somewhere else, like you're not allowed to do it until you can give a defense as to why it was put there in the first place. That, I think that ties in really. I think that ties in well with this last one. Um, my final and perhaps my best reason for not owning a computer is that I do not wish to fool myself. I disbelieve and therefore strongly resent the assertion that I or anybody else could write better or more easily with a computer than with a pencil. I do not see why I should not be as scientific about this as the next fellow. When somebody has used a computer to write words that it, that to write work, I'm sorry, to write work that is demonstrably better than Dante's. And when his and when this better is demonstrably attributable attributable attributed? Able, yeah, no, whatever. Able to be attributed to the use of a computer, then I will speak of computers <laughs> with a more respectful tone of voice, though I will not though I still will not buy one. That's kind of a bit of a fallacy. He's like, what no one's it? written better than Dante with a computer, therefore computers are bad. No, 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 no. He's saying that um, being able to write Better on the computer because of well, the because computer. because of the computer. Yeah, All right. that, that's what he's saying. Like, is there anything in the computer that will make him write better? His goal is not quantity. His, his friends are telling him, you'll be able to write more if you get a computer. But it, his goal is not to write more. Like, it's solving a it's problem. To write well. Yes. Which we will talk about in my next episode. <laughs> oh, Flash right forward now. to next week. Hey, it's talking a web. About writing. Hey, it's you, a web. Are you going to tell people to write by pen and paper with a quill? With mm, a, I am not. You but writing more versus writing better, we will address that. Why do you, Dude, hate, so why do you hate community? Oh, let's go. Okay. Um, so that's his, his last one is that it's solving a problem he doesn't have. So he'd be able to write more but not write better. That Yes, that's his assertion. I mean, yeah. Think of, like, so 
we all write a lot every yeah. day, mm-hmm. but they're emails. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. So my writing a lot is not awesome. Like, it's not helping me to become a better writer. I'm practicing bad writing most mm-hmm. every day. Um, or we write a lot, but it's texting instead of... Sure. Um, I've, I am now... Uh, my, my wife and I only communicate with bitmojis. This has <laughs> good, been this good. has been the progression of our of our relationship. And, and you all have degraded and funny little uh, uh, comic characters. I'm judging you a little. Um, but like, okay, so if if Wendell Berry is saying technological progress, yeah, but progress towards what? That's yep. kind of his question. What are we progressing towards? Yep. And and I mean, and I I think I can understand what he, what he's saying. There's, he still has the problem, too, which is he's saying, I want to go back or I don't want to progress. But then the question is, go back to what? Like, what is what is the sort of age where we had the perfect marriage between technology and humanity? Which, like, he, 19, he's, 1954, he, 1956, when his typewriter came out, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like, that. that's kind of always been my, my frustration is he has said, blindly accepting technology means that we will that we will um, shed some things we probably don't want to shed. And I can totally get on board with that argument, that we should not just unquestionably receive technology. But then when, yeah, when was the point? Is it really the 1950s? Was that the point when, like, humanity had this perfect blend between technological progress and, and like, you know, strong, healthy, small-town communities? No. I don't think he's advocating for no technology. I think he's advocating for smart use of technology. So he, so again, he he writes on pen and paper, but then uh, typewriter still is involved in this mm-hmm. process. Like he's okay with there being technology, but he instead of just buying the new thing because it's new, he wants to intentionally add it to his process. And I think he's pointing out that more convenient doesn't necessarily mean better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked at a coffee shop where we didn't have a dishwasher, which might sound like a huge pain where you're using a lot of mugs. <clears throat> excuse me. And you're using a lot of utensils and that sort of thing. But what I found is that when I was washing dishes, it required me to stand at the bar Mm -hmm. and talk to the people sitting there. And it gave me something to do with my hands. It wasn't awkward for me to just stand there and talk at their face. I had a job. And so it helped to build community. And so when we were thinking about actually adding one, Mm -hmm. all of us across the board said that would hurt the coffee shop overall because it it would mean that it would kill community because we didn't have anything to do standing at the bar anymore. So I think like automatically opting for convenience over considering, okay, what, what does this do to my process? What does it do to my community? What does it do to me in general is a good thing. Like even, even our clothes washing now, we spend less time with our garments. We don't have that moment of like just physical work and peace. And that might be contributing to our widespread anxiety Mm. and nervousness and general stress is because we don't have those times in the day that we are forced to stop and slow down. Like, you guys probably take your phones to the toilet, yes? Am I the only one? I actually, I don't. I, I have a fear that I'm going to drop it in. I don't want to comment this on a recorded podcast, so no, of course. Uh, well, I would say that most people probably have their phones true. with them in the bathroom, <laughs> right? And they, yeah. And so instead of having that moment of peace to yourself, you are bringing the stress of the outside world, you're checking things, you're checking emails, and even those small breaks are gone. Mm-hmm. And weirdly enough, I think that's one of the things that make cigarettes so attractive. Mm. It is a forced break. break in the day where yeah. you have to go, you have to stand outside, you get some sun, you get some wind, you don't do anything, and then you get to go back inside, which I think for a smoker would be hard to give up. It'd mm-hmm. be hard to give up for me. The break itself, not even just the... Yeah, the fact the that your body's addicted to, to the, the most. But, I mean, that's, but, that's, but there are benefits to it other than yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So so it's these small things, right? Considering how how a move forward in technology affects your life and affects your psyche and affects your community, it's worth thinking about those things before getting into it. So then the answer is like looking at your life, looking at what you do and try to craft or, or try to edit uh, your life as opposed to that's a, like that's min a, max. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you right. know what I mean. That's a that's a great point. Yeah, because um, uh, Wendell Berry kind of has the benefit of that. He just he um, he had started writing with a typewriter, and then as new technology came, he just said, "Nope, I'm good," and then has continued in his process. As opposed to us, who have been using things and then have to take them away. That would be really interesting. I wonder if our so we are essentially we are all millennials here. Yeah. I think yeah. I wonder if we, so we we grew up in this era of, we can probably remember when we got internet. Yes. Yeah. Can, and we probably remember when. I remember the AOL CD. 
Mm, we yeah. used, we got yeah. even though we all had AOL, still we'd still them. get coasters. I, I turned them all into coasters with a microwave. <laughs> so we came of age moving from essentially like less technolo- technology to like ubiquitous technology. Whereas I, in our students, they're they're living in ubiquitous technology. Yeah, and so it'll be interesting to see if our generation, when we hit a certain age, we actually reach a cap where we say. I am not going to continue to learn new technology. I'm like saying, I'm going to stop here. Like, I don't want to install a computer in my brain like yeah. all the kids are doing. I'm going to, I'm, I'm comfortable with my cell phone. Thank you very much. Yeah. Or if our generation's continuously going to be chasing, like, you know, onboarding ourselves to these new technologies and the new technologies. It'll I tried to stay with a flip phone for yeah. as long as I could because those things are indestructible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but yours I, was uh, the group text thing, right? Yeah, I, I mm-hmm. couldn't handle getting separate texts from everybody rather than a group text. And when I went to go get a new flip phone, it was more expensive yeah, yeah. than the yeah. smartphones. But like that's what should scare you. Like, why is it more expensive than the other ones? Because something subsi- because they're subsidizing. Them well, new. Gonna, so Apple. So when I buy an iPhone, I, I own an iPhone. Um, like when I buy that, Apple does not just get the money off of that purchase, but they also get my app purchases mm-hmm. through that or music purchases through there. I don't know, like. His point on the advertising is interesting, that someone is still making money off of us, um, just in different ways. I don't know. While the flip phone, you only pay it once, and then you're done. Well, you still have to pay Verizon. Right, but I'm saying that, um, so the smartphone will have the phone itself, plus the data, plus the apps you're buying, plus the music. Like, they make more money off all that stuff. Anyway, um, so we're we're about halfway through, because we're sitting at about 30 minutes right now. So What's point number four? Is that where we're at? We finished. We just did four. Four was that oh. um, the computer solves a problem he doesn't need solved. The computer solves the problem of typing more. That's not his goal. His goal is quality over quantity. And, and his problem with advertisers is that they're convincing him that he has a problem that he doesn't have. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I, I can get behind that. I kind of like it because we, we complain about advertising on this podcast sometimes. And I complain about it and then buy the stuff that they're advertising to me, like, if I want it. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of rewarding that at advertising. Um. I try not to blame products for derpy advertisers. Yeah. Like, the guy who invented it might have meant well, and it might be a great product, and then they just talk it in a weird way. Because it's a different person advertising mm-hmm. it than, right. than building it, for sure. Uh, he, he wraps up with these nine rules for technology that he has. Um, I will just run through them, and then... Wait, was there not a fifth reason? Or he had four reasons why not to buy it. Four. four. Oh, okay. Four reasons. So, um, some rules for his for, like, the technology that he will actually use. Uh, to, uh, to make myself as plain as I can, I should give my standards for technological innovations in my own work. They are as follows. The new tool should be cheaper than the one it replaces. It should be at least as small in scale as the one it replaces. It should do work that is clearly and demonstrably better than the one it replaces. It should use less energy than the one it replaces. If possible, it should use some form of solar energy, such as that of the body. It should be repairable by a person of ordinary intelligence, provided that he or she has the necessary tools. I like that one. Well, that ship sailed a long time. Uh, uh, seriously. It should be... Pers- well, yeah, try working on your car. Holy smokes. Anymore. But you can still... You can buy an older it's car. It's a computer. Yeah, it is a computer now. It should be purchasable and repairable as near to home as possible. It should come from a small, privately owned shop or store that will take it back for maintenance and repair. I like that one, too. It should not replace or disrupt anything good that already exists, and this includes family and community relationships. Those are his nine. Okay, so uh, Wendell Berry writes this essay. Um, he writes it for the delightfully named New England Review and Bread Loaf Quarterly. <laughs> that awesome? Uh, but then it's reprinted in Harper's. Yeah. Um, and so um, people don't like this essay, and they write him lots of angry letters. Um, and the angry letters cover many of the things that we've said. Um, do y'all want to guess any of the other angry responses he got after having written in Harper's? It seems like he is preventing a future where grand technological advances can happen because mm-hmm. he says if it has to be re- reparable by a person of ordinary intelligence, close to home, a shop that'll take it back for repair, he's basically refusing any any advances made by people of great intelligence. Yes. That is, that's the second of the responses goes into that. That's a great point. Anything else? Mm. There's kind of the big one that, um, uh, yeah, I'll spoil in a second. But do you all have any other guesses for big complaints to his essay? That he's not on board with, like, the trajectory of the culture. Yeah. That, that he's sort of opting out of, of the culture and therefore is... Um, the same kind of argument that was made against the Christians by the Roman Empire, that like mm-hmm. they, are, they are not shoring up the Imperium, they are often doing their own, their own thing in the woods. Yep. Um, that, that, um, that he's, yeah, if he's essentially giving up on progress, or if, he's, or if he's actively being a bump in the road of progress, then he is sort of hurting 
progress. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not everybody has a wife who can write. That's it. Thank you. Like the, the big one, the big one that people like um, focus in on and do not move past is like your wife. Like, um, let me. The first one is is about this specifically. Wait, story. I was right. You were right. You what? were. That is the so that's the reason the second one is named feminism, the body and the machine. Um, but we will talk generally about that one. We won't go as specific as we are in this one. So his first one, the first letter, um, they only. They were um, in the next essay. Wendell Berry says that um, he got of, of the multitude of letters he got that were negative, he received three that were positive, uh, and the multitude of those letters were along this kind of same vein. Wendell Berry provides writers enslaved by the computer with a handy alternative: wife, a low-tech energy-saving device. Drop a pile of handwritten notes on wife, and you get back a finished manuscript edited while it was typed. And then it goes on from there. So they're, yeah, they're just being snarky about. The, they take umbrage with. Um, like that really working with his wife? Well, but think of it. Like, um, I can I can see what they're saying. They make the assumption that she's unpaid and that she doesn't want to do it, and that it's drudgery to type notes. And so the way they're interpreting it is that he is forcing his wife to do this stuff as that, opposed to doing whatever she wants, which mm-hmm. might be getting a job or uh, doing her own creative endeavor. Instead, she is tied to her husband's endeavor. That's yeah. That is a, that is an assumption that they make. I feel like the automatic response from Wendell should be like, "You don't know me." Yeah, and that's my wife. Liter- that's almost literally what he says. <laughs> yeah, like, you don't. You don't know how we function and what she likes and what I like and what I've asked of her. And um, in Wendell's response, eventually he says, "I'm also surprised by the meanness with which two of these writers re- refer to my wife. In order to imply that I'm a tyrant, they suggest by both direct statement and innuendo that she is subservient, characterless, and stupid—a mere device easily forced to provide meaningless free labor." I understand that it is impossible to make an adequate defense of one's private life, and so I will only point out that there are a number of kinder possibilities that my critics have disdained to imagine. He goes on to say what those other um, alternatives are, and then in reference to those two writers, he says they are audacious and irresponsible gossips. Which is just a <laughs> shut down. But I well, mean, yeah, I mean, he, like she, per, it could be that she saw his writing, loves his writing, and wants to help in his endeavor, and yep. believes in him, and believes in the work. Or and because she's helping with ideas, mm-hmm. like he, she's. He is putting out her ideas as well. So I think he's right. They, yeah. they assume a lot of things about her that they shouldn't. Yeah. And he's also with talking about this kind of rattling the cages or, or um, poking fun at the sacred cow of modernity, which is we should use technology to be able to be as free as possible. And that means being able to do what we want. Yeah. And if anybody sort of sn- seem, seems to think that two people are yoking themselves together and maybe they're not both not like they're giving up something of them quote unquote giving up something of themselves in order to work together then that is some great evil but i mean like you cannot be married without closing doors on other things and that is not a tragedy that is a fact of life like you it's just all the same thing with kids you cannot have children without closing the doors on other things that you (laughs) on any fun without closing the doors on other things and I think the modern world looks at this and says, that shouldn't be the case. We should be able to leverage technology to have it all. I mean, this is, um, this is the big, the, the, you know, the, the, the having it all narrative, especially women in the workplace, Sheryl Sandberg's, mm-hmm. what's the name of the book? Lean In. Lean In. Um, that's kind of the idea is we should be able to have it all. Let's use, let's see if we can leverage technology or, or the sharing economy or whatever so that, the, so that women can have it all, so that families can have it all. So. Um, but people just don't like the idea that you have to give up things in order for decisions you make to function properly. Yeah. Like, I think, I think there's another assumption in there too that, so first off, they're assuming that Wendell Berry's wife, uh, isn't paid for her work, yeah. which we don't know if she is. Um, um, but I mean, it, if he pays his wife and they are a weird? family, like yeah. it wouldn't make sense. Stupid. Right. Because the money is owned collectively. Like yeah. it doesn't, it wouldn't mean anything for him to pay her, but, but, but. The idea that... The well, that wor- goes back to the yeah. Dershowitz thing that we talked about, yes. where Dershowitz said sort of neoliberalism is turning everything into a monetary value. Yes. And that's what people are doing to his marriage. Yes, saying that it only has value if there's payment. But that, that's the other piece I wanted to push back on. That, and, and he, this is what Wendell Berry is talking about, that to think that work only has value if it is paid it, uh, uh, is bonkers. Yeah. I don't know what the is, term is for no, that. What are you going to say? No, I mean, like, so our students, our seniors just turned in their last essay of high school. And they are, it was an essay that essentially their grades are in, Mm -hmm. their diplomas are printed, they are going to graduate, they've been accepted to college, and the vast majority of them wrote essays with the 
sort of headspace of this doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And the reason why they're saying this doesn't mean anything is because they mean no grade. There's the grade that is given to it is not one that is going to mean anything for my college or my future or whatever. But it is still an essay where they are thinking about the nature of man and writing about it. It's just they are showing that oftentimes they think about grades in terms of um, whether they're getting paid for it. And yep. the payment is is the sort of the grade, yeah. um, which is kind of sad. And to be fair to them, I mean, we, we've trained them that way. And we've so trained them that way. And they've been well, in the system I'll, What I was going to say is that we do the same thing. I think about, sometimes I think about classes in terms of like, payment and should I take on this elective because I will be paid for it and there's there's a cost benefit analysis I can only teach so many classes right. and I have to balance how much money I want to make with how much time I want to have yeah. and like they they've got to do the same thing in yeah. all fairness to students like learning what your teachers want and where to spend your time is is a necessary of the student life that is unfortunate in our day and age like mm-hmm. it was like back in the day when you had like Aristotle as a teacher there was one assignment mm-hmm. and you probably had a while to do it and then you were critiqued by your master and by the other students, mm-hmm. and there wasn't seven different subjects, all with different assi- different assignments, all with different teachers. At least, probably, unless you were being personally tutored by several different teachers. Mm-hmm. And then, like, they might know each other and have talked or whatever. So I don't know. I, I mean, I have to sympathize with the student and think about like all the things they've got going on. They've got to think about summer programs, graduation programs. They're they're going to visit schools already. They have graduation coming up. Like there's there's a bunch of stuff going on for them that means that our last assignment might be a low priority compared to those other things. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, I I totally agree. Uh, but um, but thinking of things transactionally or thinking yes. of things um, is we all we all fall into it. And it, and I think Wendell Berry is right to to say that when it creeps into our relationships, mm-hmm. our deep our marriage bonds of, of talking about someone transactionally that's a dark why dark. should I compliment my life my wife she never compliments me yeah yeah or and then you're then I you're paid mm-hmm. for it then you're going down this sort of dark path of, right. of not of yeah he goes into this more in the um, the second essay um, that yeah and saying that it uh, the work is only valuable if there is payment attached to it if um, if she had gone and, and worked as an editor for um, a company, there'd be no problem. And Wendell Berry had written an essay about her. There would there wouldn't have been a problem. No one would have raised a concern about you know why is she an editor at you know at Harper's or whatever. Um, but in entering into that economic relationship, she's instead of being equal in the work with her husband, that they are both doing that work together to create that together. And there's a, a respect there. She would be um, under the authority of a boss who doesn't mm-hmm. care for her in the same way that a husband would. So that's the other sad piece of it is that um, it's trading in a freedom in that small cottage industry for, um, I don't know what to call it, um, for, the, a, um, an, the for a boss, for, a, yeah. for, for the marketplace. Yeah. Like it's a worse, I don't know. Wouldn't you rather do that work with your wife? Like totally build something together and then. I don't know. But then that also makes it, like, for the students, I don't know. Some of the benefits of technology is that it's easier to have those cottage industries than it was even when he's writing. True. But, but we and we have some students who have started businesses, and which is awesome, and we want to encourage that. But it's not the majority of our students, and it's not the majority of our teachers, by Mm -hmm. any means, that are doing those things. Um, But, I mean, yes, the technology does mean that in one so. It does create more freedom. It can, like for example, my wife can can be a freelance graphic designer because she owns her she owns her means of production, her yeah. iMac, yeah. and she can work with the sweat of her brow and earn her own money um, as a as a freelancer. So in that sense, that is a tremendous amount of freedom. Yeah. Uh, then she then if you thirty years ago where you couldn't have done that easily, you would you know it, you would need to be working with a design agency. So, um, yeah. So it, it's like. This double ed- technology is this double-edged sword. Or the other, the problem is is that we are if we do not train people to be shrewd enough to use it for a vision of humanity that is honoring or, or human dignity, then they will use. Then you can fall into these places of using technology that is degrading. Yeah. We can make a thousand T-shirts a minute, um, but all we need to do is like employ Sri Lankan workers at pennies a day in order to do it. That is a technological reality that is not true. 
400 years ago. Yeah. Um, and that's the, but cost. that's the cost. That's the cost, yeah. But there's also technological realities that weren't true 400 years ago that have meant like tremendous amounts of freedom for lots and lots and lots of people. And what I mean by freedom is I mean the ability to own your own property, earn your own money, um, um, be able to make decisions for yourself um, apart from um, some sort of like like um, a subsidiary. Uh, um, um. Are you talking about like investing when you say things like that? Yeah, that's a great example. Like yeah. I can I can invest money the way that I want as opposed to um, um, mutual funds, which were the you know the deal forty years ago, mm-hmm. and 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 then also. No investing 100 years ago. Right. That's so. But Jack Bogle, in order to introduce electronically traded, traded funds ETFs, had to um, earn less than he could have working anywhere else. Like it was an act. I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's a certain magnanimity in it that he wanted a thing that would be good for people and had to. Um, <laughs> the first time they offered an ETF, they didn't. Um, not as many people invested as they wanted to, um, and so it ended up falling through. And he had to put these forward three or four times until finally there was enough interest in it. Like, I don't know. It took someone who wasn't just motivated by the marketplace um, to want to implement that. And I think that you see that in innovators and 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 uh, technology. Like, you know, how much money is Elon Musk burning through? Yeah. That's why they... That, anyway, sorry. Um, we're, we're moving toward the end. The, the, the general thing that I'm just thinking through and reading this, this chapter is like the work that is done in the household... Um, is not unworthy because there's no money attached to it. Mm-hmm. There's this thing, the Bureau of Labor Statistics does this thing called the American Time Use Survey. Um, and um, they do this every year. Uh, that's why it's called annual. So average hours per day spent in selected household activities. Um, when you look at all household activities, women um, do 50% on average more in the household than men. But like that work is still so important, even though there's no dollar value attached to that. Both The, the work that both of them are doing is so important, regardless of the money that's attached to it. Um, and they split it out by um, age of the children also. Like um, that child care on average, it tends to be women who do more of the childcare than men. Like that's still such important work that's happening, um, even though there's no dollar value attached to it. I don't know. I just think of um, at Veritas, um, we uh, partner with co-teachers, and those co-teachers are the parents of the children. And in grammar school and the school of logic, particularly, but through school of rhetoric as well, um, the the co-teacher, that parent, is is teaching their children at home. Like that work is so important that they're doing. I don't know. I was just really. I was just so thankful for the parents of the school and reading through this chapter. And when I describe the model to lots of people, they're like, oh, but think of that huge cost, that earning potential that yes. those moms are giving up yeah. by teaching their children at home. Um, how on earth can this model ever survive? And it's true. Maybe the model won't survive because of the world that we live in. I have no idea. But that is often the the um, but the, the, the pushback is like, oh, well, you know, look at all the, the money they're leaving on the table by te- training their kid at home. Why don't they just do what everybody else does but and the, have a five-day-a-week school? The gain is spending time with your kid. Yeah. Right? The, the other side of that loss is if I send my, ki- my kid to school five days a week, I have lost, you know, three, what, 24 hours with my kid every week, yeah. which is a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when, once they're fully grown, you might want that time back. Yeah. But, I don't know, it just made me super thankful of that. Because there, there is a cost to it of not taking that second job um, and choosing to make that commitment to your kids. And like, man, that work is so important. Um, we're, I'm not, I don't think I'm supposed to ruin this, but we're recording this right before Mother's Day. And it's just like, man, all, yeah, you know, it's like I hope all, all mothers feel like they're doing important work. Cause they yeah, are. I mean, it's, there are just times where I, it's just completely bonkers to think that 150 years ago, families almost spent 24 hours together all the time. Yes. Like the dad and the mom were working on the farm. The kids were working with the dad on the farm, yeah. and they had and and you had these. They entertained themselves. Yeah. They had to learn how to tell stories or play musical instruments to to entertain themselves. Um, or throw that, rocks real good. Yeah, <laughs> that concept is so foreign. Yeah. Like, I think of students who say, you know are saying things like, "We're so busy. We don't eat dinner together. Uh, we're doing all sorts of these different things." And by the time, you know, uh, um, a kid can drive, like, they, kid and parent can be like ships passing in the night, and yeah. they are independent, they are autonomous. And, um, and again, like, we didn't maybe realize we were giving up these kinds of things with technological advances or trying to keep pace with the marketplace or the fact that we now we 
generally you need two incomes in right. order for a family to survive. Right. Um, this reminds me, I remember reading a book by Stanley Hauerwas mm-hmm. um, called Resident Aliens, mm-hmm. where he was working at a church in the 80s, and the church was deciding whether or not they were going to create a daycare. Mm-hmm. And they was decided they were going to create daycare because a lot of their congregants were women who were going, you know, in the 80s, it was uh, go, go back to work, and women were reentering the workplace, and there was like a big push towards, uh, you know, that that was a, a, a noble and good thing and, and uh, a thing that was promoting equality and et cetera, et cetera. And this one little old lady stood up in the, in the church service or the, the sort of the meeting to talk about it, and she was opposed to the daycare. And the church said, well, why? We're meeting a need of our community. And she says, but you're also creating... A crutch, or you're creating a system that is giving women more freedom to be able to leave the house in order to go work. Mm. And we're not thinking about what that's going to mean for families. Mm. And the little old lady was basically laughed down. They're like, oh, that's an old fashioned view. Um, but I don't know. I think about that interaction a lot when we think about what do we value? And, uh, and, and, We've now created a system where we need two parent incomes to yes. survive, yeah. to send our kids to college, to buy a house, to save for retirement, and and you're seen to be a crazy person if you want to get out from under that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's uh, I don't think we think. I don't think the church thinks about that in terms of the human family. Yeah. About God's family. Uh, too much. Well, yeah, if this economic model has made it to the family, then it's made it to the church as well. Yeah. Um, And if the model communicates that you are important in how much you can earn, or you are important in how much, like, if what a person is for is to be, uh, you know, the cog in the machine, or we talk about this in Brave New World, uh, the book that we read in 10th grade, you know, you are your purpose is to fill the place of your inescapable social destiny, <laughs> right? To fill the job that you were created to do, yeah. button pusher, you know, uh, or whatever it is. Um, um, that That is a kind of a dehumanizing thing over time. Yeah. Um, but we don't, yeah, anyway, because we're, it's what we grew up in, we don't really think about it as much. I don't know. Yeah. And I'm not sure we, end, I'm not sure we end this episode with like a lot of questions being answered, probably no. more things just being raised. But I think, I think that there's, an importance to that. Um, He's like an angry prophet from a bygone era. That's yes. how I but see Wendell Berry is that he is this that? person who's like, take a look at what you're doing. And yeah. um, and I guess he is sort of easy to, to dismiss as a curmudgeon. Mm-hmm. But. He is a little curmudgeonly. Yeah. I mean, but that doesn't, we made better buckets back then. Like that, that's has, but what that, if he's, isn't but what that if, kind of funny? But what, but what if he's right? I mean, he probably is. Like I, the stoves made in the 70s but, are still a truck. Or example of the Spartans and like the incredible stuff that they made. Like, yeah, but, but I've, what, I've always been a proponent that, that you know, age should not be an indicator of okay. value, right? The new isn't always the better. Yeah. That's chronological snobbery. And so I'm not sure that, like, I, I like his attitude on a lot of things, but but if that if that is your, I hope that's not his only message. No, but Berg, we right. specifically engineer iPhones to break after a certain period of time. So to me, the, the, the thing that just rankled my ire was when the story came out that Apple was, was actually down. throttling their devices was slowing down their devices. And to me, I was like, I completely understand why they are and the argument that they could probably tell themselves why this was an okay thing to do. But when you think about that, to me, that was just, I think about my grandfather that would like go on and on and on and on about like the quality of tools, mm-hmm. like buy a good hammer once because it's going to last forever. And I would be like, this is like, <laughs> why am I listening to this? Oh no, my, yeah, I don't my, need a hammer. Same. My dad said the same thing. Exactly. One of my favorite phrases. And uh, if you've got kids in the car, I am there, there is a, a light swear coming. So heads up for that. You might want to skip forward 10 seconds, but he said, you know, uh, good tools are expensive, cheap tools are damn expensive, <laughs> right? Because you're gonna you have to buy them twelve right. times because right. they keep on breaking. So that, that's one of my favorite phrases. And I think about that. Like when I was young, I always used to buy camping equipment from you know the general mm-hmm. store that was made out of canvas, and I you know I'd buy the cheapest version. But after you know hiking with a canvas thing rather than something of, of like durable, lightweight, like good quality material, and feeling the difference between their durability and how long they last, mm-hmm. and like it is worth spending money on good things that last and are. Yeah. Well made. But what I'm saying is, but that is true, but companies make more money by making things that break and having you to buy it again. Right. So, so that's like, why I'd be careful about what I buy. So sure. like, but the, but we've, 
but the marketplace is sort of giving these incentives to not actually value quality. Yeah. Um, and then, but then there are magnanimous businesses that say, "I don't care. I'm going to make quality things anyway because and, of the craft or the thing that I like." You know. Yeah. And that's why. And that's why Wendell Berry elsewhere in this book of essays is talking about that. That needs to be more local. That you need a community. You need a community of people who each need each other. So each person is doing something that benefits everyone else. Um, because when you make that bucket for your neighbor, you're going to make it differently than if you make it for unnamed consumer across the world. That's right, because if the guy makes a leaky bucket, he's going to yep. be shamed in the community. Yep. Whereas if, if, like, Dick's Sporting se- uh, sells leaky buckets, like, the CEO of Dick's Sporting don't care. Yeah. Or whatever. <laughs> but is that, I mean, uh, we, we got to wrap this up because it, it is We're getting an hour. Yeah. deathly hot in this room. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, that's, like, um, look at a company like REI that makes really quality products and then stands by them for but they a are, lifetime. But they are uh, the exception that proves the rule. Well, because sure. there are so few that do that. Sure, yeah. but my point is that they are a a big successful company. They're probably the leader in outdoor sporting goods right now because they have that value for their customers. And you recently bought a new computer, and I know that you switched away from the per- the computer you had partially because of their business practices. Yep. And so, like the market does reward companies that treat their. Customers I switched to well. PC from being an Apple user for probably fifteen years because of. I was just spooked by that that thing. All right, yeah. like I didn't want to reward that bad behavior. Yeah. Exactly. But the thing and is, so I'm sure Microsoft has bad behavior, but anyway. But that's uh, the the ability that we have to um, make change in a company like Microsoft is different than the amount of change we can make if in, it's more localized. That's true. That's fair. Mm-hmm. And also, I, I, the thing with REI is that they're um, the ownership model of the company matters because they're a cooperative. They're mm-hmm. owned yep. by people who buy into it. I as, own a chunk. Oh, that's so good. As I love co-ops. To, let's do a podcast on co-ops. Okay, we got, we got to wrap it up. It's We're so not hot yet. Um, as opposed to a publicly traded company yeah. um, who is report Anyway, so um, I think we've, again, not ending on any specific, whatever, maybe some answers, but that... This is our uh, bi-local podcast. Kind of. But like, I love that he... So whenever we talk about problems of technology, it's really easy to point to, we get distracted, or I don't know. As, as Graham checks his phone, oh, no, what's happening? That there are more problems in um, running for technology as quickly as possible than even are obvious on the face. I think um, Wendell Berry is pointing out four new ones that I hadn't even considered. And th- so that's a point. That's one point. And then that second point of um, the dangers of that economic model of, um, you know, I only do things if I get a reward. Um, work is only valuable if there's payment tied to it. Um, I think it's a really dangerous way of looking mm-hmm. at non-economic things. I'm a business. I, I'm a business major for undergrad. I got my master's of business administration from the University of Texas. Like, I to- I'm totally cool with the economic model in the right context, um, but it's dangerous when it applies to our, our social mm-hmm. relationships. So, um, that's everything I wanted to say. Um, Want to close this uh, out? All right. So we uh, we have a website, classicalstuff.net. You can check out all our episodes there. Oh, I have a commonplace reading. Oh, yeah. Let's do and commonplace. it's pertinent to this. So this is uh, said in the inaugural address from Prince Philip. So he was married to Queen Victoria. And it was at the opening of one of the big expos that happened in the 19th century. It was either the one in um, France where they did the Eiffel Tower. That can't be right. Um, maybe it was the Crystal Palace. Anyway, it was one of those expos where all of the new technology was being on display. And I think this was the one there was like the steam engine and, um, and the telegraph and, you know, all these sorts of things. And so Prince Philip, sorry, Prince Albert gave this speech or give, this is an excerpt from his speech and just listen to the, uh, to his reading of history and the idea of progress and how technology can save us. And this was like in the 1850s. Nobody who has paid any attention to the peculiar features of the present era will doubt for a moment that we are living at a period of most wonderful transition, which tends rapidly to accomplish that great end to which, indeed, all history points, the realization of the unity of mankind. The distances which separate the different nations and parts of the globe are rapidly vanishing before the achievements of modern invention. And we can traverse them with incredible ease. Thought is communicated with the rapidity and even the power of lightning. The products of all quarters of the globe are placed at our disposal, and we have only to choose which is the best and the cheapest for our purposes. And the power of production are entrusted to the stimulus of competition and capital. So man is approaching a more complete fulfillment of that great 
and sacred mission mm. he has to perform in the world. And then 50 years later, World War I happened. <laughs> wow. Anyway. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right. On, uh, on Twitter, we are C-L-S-S-C-A-L stuff. Stuff. So at classical stuff. And uh, you can reach us there. You can find us on iTunes and Google Play and online. I'm sure that you're finding us at one of those places even now. Uh, and uh, if you want to contact us, please send an email to classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. We will get back to you if we, if we can. Uh, we always like to you know, hit our listeners back. And I think that's it, boys. Am I missing anything? That's, that's, that's it. good. All okay. right. So thank you, Thomas, for talking about what people are for. I'm still a little confused about what they're for. Uh, it's a different essay. So it's the name of the book of essays, and then it's also an individual essay within it. So Right. At the very least, you can stack things on them. So that's one thing <laughs> we have yep, going for yep, us. Yep, good. All right. Thanks to everybody, and we will see you next week. So Bye. Thanks. See you later. Ciao.